the arts must be much closer together than they have been in the past and in bad times such as this. These are two segments of society which in many ways speak the same language and which must uh, work together, it seems to me, uh, to uh, preserve what passes for civilization in this country. We hope in the future and for part of the behalf of the School of the Arts, which is moving up from our present location on 110th Street, to have many more sponsoring uh, and co-sponsoring many other uh, events, such as a, a conference bringing a number of Latin American authors uh, to this uh, campus in April and, and uh, setting up a place where writers both in the in and outside of the university may meet as a kind of cafe, something of this kind, to create a community of artists both in and out of the university. So I welcome you both as a member of Penn and as a member of the faculty of Columbia. We would like to introduce Mr. Thomas Lask from the New York Times, who will moderate the afternoon and who will introduce the speaker. Thank you, Mr. Shane. I want to thank you and through you the college for sponsoring the uh, this talk on uh, criticism of the film, and I hope I share the hope with you that there'll be the first of a similar series in which we have mutual interests in the arts. Uh, our topic tonight is criticism of film, uh, and although it'll be very difficult to avoid speaking about film, the idea really is to talk about criticism often. Uh, I don't think we need to be too defensive about the topic because it seems to me that since World War II an enormous change has taken place in the country, certainly in the uh, large cultural sectors. Uh, I think film today has become a new literacy. Only recently someone remarked that young people today would be hard put to name six literary critics, but that had no trouble at all naming six film critics. And coming as I do from the bookish section, uh, I think that's a grievous fault. Uh, when I was very young, thank you. <laughs> when I was very young, everyone uh, wanted to write novel, and some of us, of course, tried and did. But today, all the young people want to make uh, films, and almost all of them do, judging from some I've managed to see. <laughs> uh, however, the the emphasis on criticism is can be summed up in what exactly has criticism done for the film? Has it influenced it and in what way? Has it helped shape it? Has it helped alter taste? Has it been directed at the audience or the filmmaker and so on? Has it merely been a parasite and lived off? Certainly film criticism is enormously visible today. You can barely turn to any magazine, any periodical, to say nothing of newspapers where you cannot find a film critic. Uh, the question is, what exactly does it do? And we hope and we're sure that the panel will illuminate that question for us this evening. <coughs> uh, we're very lucky in having two critics and one filmmaker. And I hope that Mr. Mankiewicz, whom I'm going to ask to speak second, will draw no melancholy conclusions from being in the middle. Our first speaker, Mr. Andrew Sarris, is a member of the faculty at Columbia and author and, and a critic of The Village Voice, and author of The American Cinema, a book which called attention to a great many American directors who up till then had scarcely received any serious attention from film critics. 
I don't think that uh, they shared his judgment all the time, but they certainly were compelled to debate it. His most recent book, Confessions of a Cultist, was published only recently. <coughs> Mr. Sarah. Thank you, Mr. Lask. Um, is it all right if I sit? I don't think I have to stand. Uh, or should I stand? No. I, I'd like to keep it sort of informal. I had an idea that we just sit here and, uh, you know, uh, hurl things back. And uh, uh, I had a, uh, uh, I was going to start with, with a line that it's not appropriate anymore, but I'll use it just the same. That uh, the nice thing about being a film critic is never having to say you're sorry uh, and uh, never having to apologize. And I'm afraid that many of the opening, uh, opening comments here imply a certain defensiveness uh, as it's involved uh, with film criticism. I don't feel defensive about criticism or about film criticism. I don't feel, I hope, offensive either. I don't claim any special uh, privileges for it. I, I do take exception to one argument that is presented more or less, that uh, film has replaced literature, has replaced books. I don't take on a McLuhanist line. As a matter of fact, I, I don't feel that the attitude of a great many young filmmakers today, that they can go straight into film through some mystical process through celluloid, at least to the kind of film that most of us know, uh, is valid. I think that, I would say, uh, the art of the novel, perhaps, the art of narrative, has a lot, large part of it has been transferred to film. I think we can go into it more deeply in the sense that uh, the novel as we knew it, let's say, or as it was known in the 19th century, has lost some of its amplitude in a great many cases. And a lot of it has gone into film, but a lot of it has also gone into journalism. I think Norman Mailer, for example, is an example of a literary personality would have liked to have been a classical 19th century novelist. But I think he found the novel, from his point of view, from his taste, somewhat shrunken, I mean, from his uh, range of interests. And so I think he's diverted a great deal of his novelistic power into journalism. I think he's become a very great journalist. Uh, I think at one time, the novel took in both journalism, narrative, philosophy, and so forth. It was a much more inclusive form. I think there's been a tendency in the novel in the 20th century, in the highbrow novel, uh, to make it uh, less inclusive, to make it more exclusive, to make it more a, uh, in many cases, in many uh, very advanced schools of writing, a uh, study in you know, how to write a novel or why a novel cannot be written, or what the problem of illusion and reality, problems of illusion and reality are, and so forth. I'm not, uh, I'm not criticizing this, I'm not ridiculing this, I'm not you know, raising the Philistinish cackle against modern novels, very avant-garde novelists uh, at all. I, I'm not questioning this. I don't wish to. I, this is not the time and place now anyway to raise a debate about it. But I think the same power can be drawn into film. I, I have taken always an inclusive view of film. To me, film is everything. It includes everything. It opens up everything. And I'm interested in film as a window on life, as a halfway house be between heart, heart and life. I don't see it as a mystical medium, something you know, that comes when you hold film up and you, you get some kind of mystical feelings just by holding your hand up on the film. And therefore, I don't want to make my position a position of um, 
one medium confronting another, or our time has come, Lask, uh, this is the end of you, we're, we're in the saddle now. I mean, this is not, uh, you know, shootout at Deadwood Gulch or anything. This is not what I think film criticism getting into or should get into. I think what film criticism should go, and if film is to evolve and expand, I think it has to, I'm really looking more and more into a unified field theory of aesthetic, something that can apply to all the arts and which film can partake of all the arts and not jealously preserve its own essence. Now, one other point I just want to make before I turn the thing over just to get things started. Um, I do feel, however, that it's not just a question of film people getting a great deal of influence, uh, you know, a group of us people called film critics. Uh, I, I was, for instance, struck uh, very recently, I, I wrote a piece for uh, Commentary magazine and the piece adjoining mine was a review by a, an English academic, a very literary person. Uh, I think it was a review, if I'm, my memory says incorrectly, some literary uh, a book, really. And I think, it's, uh, I think it was Nixon Agonistes, this book by Will, I'm not sure, but some work, anyway. And his whole first column of his review was full of the most sophisticated cinematic terms. I mean, talking about all kinds of freeze frames, dissolves, and so forth. And my entire piece on, it was a piece on Parker Tyler, on film criticism, had less cinematic jargon than his piece had. I mean, in other words, my task, my task was to try to explain film in literary terms to predominant literary readership. And he was using, I think, to be au courant, and to, you know, to be with the film generation. He was using almost exclusively cinematic terms to explain a largely literary phenomenon. I think this is something that's happened. And I think it's a very healthy phenomenon. I think what is happening is that all the different schools of criticism are beginning to partake of each other's language and becoming aware of each other. And all that I ask, I don't want to keep literature out of film or painting or music, but I think that people who are interested in literature and painting and music, I think, should begin to recognize film as one of the fine arts, one of the humanities, one of the indispensable cultural disciplines of our time, not as the most important or most profound, but as one of the essential ones to a complete education. And by the same token, I think people who are in film criticism, I think, should... Uh, expand their awareness of other arts and disciplines in order to make a greater contribution to film. Thank you. <coughs> I was especially delighted when our next speaker, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, agreed to participate in the panel, because I could think of no one who has a longer career as both a writer, producer, and director of films. I think it goes back uh, some 30-odd years. Uh, yeah, very odd. <laughs> <laughs> and in, in some cases he had a dual role among his pictures for example if I had a million Philadelphia story fury all about Eve guys and dolls and the quiet America which seems to me express a pretty wide range Mr. Mankiewicz uh, I too prefer to sit uh, for no other reason than to keep what Mr. Nixon hopefully calls a low profile. <laughs> uh, and being in the middle uh, means no more to me than it always has. St. <laughs> Bartholomew, uh, 
is the position of the writer and director usually between critics. You said something very interesting. Uh, you quoted, I think I've seen that too. Someone, by the way, I, uh, my present condition is exactly what it was when I last left Columbia, unprepared. <laughs> uh, <laughs> literally. Um, but uh, I think I uh, am qualified, I have the scars to show it, to speak about criticism. Uh, I'm just about, uh, as you so politely put it, I'm just about the oldest whore on the beach, <laughs> and I do know the fudge. Uh, you mentioned something about the youth of today, the young, I want to make it, what do I do with myself, how do I express myself, man or woman. Uh, being able to name six film critics, and not six book critics, would it surprise you if I were to say, I don't think that Federico Fellini could name six film critics. I think I would find it hard put, unless I were to speak to uh, the Hollywood Reporter and uh, people who uh, represent uh, green sheets and various other PPA papers. I think that the, to bring our discussion closer to what I think we are to discuss, which is not the novel, or the novel on film. I had experience with that too. I, uh, if I go down in American literary history at all, it will probably be a, in a footnote of having spit on the flag, uh, because I rewrote Scott Fitzgerald's dreadful dialogue for all three comments. Uh, this was Again, oddly enough, Andy, you will find that very few novelists have been able to write plays. There have been exceptions, of course, of Galsworthy, Mom, you can name a handful of them. Mm -hmm. Henry James couldn't. Uh, we know, uh, I know in my lifetime among my friends, Red Lewis, tried desperately to write a play and couldn't. Hemingway couldn't write a play. Steinbeck couldn't, except for Mice and Men, which he uh, felt so timid about. He wrote it first as a novel, didn't? And it was, it was George Kaufman that yeah. forced him to break it down into a, the play it was. Uh, O'Hara couldn't. None of them couldn't. Uh, the film is not the novel. The film dialogue is not the dialogue of the novel. The dialogue, uh, the prose writer writes his dialogue to be ingested through the eye, through the brain, and the reader sets an ambiance, and uh, the reader renders all sorts of magic within his own brain by himself to lines that if they were spoken from a stage or from a screen would be unbearable to listen to. Uh, I can remember uh, when, uh, David Selznick asked me once to do uh, Tender as the Night. 
And I had to ask the question because by this time uh, uh, the scars were just healing. Uh, from three comrades, I said, would I be forced to use Scott's dialogue? Mm -hmm. And uh, David said, oh, I, I always insist upon using the dialogue of the novel. Well, this was the biggest mistake in the making of that film. You oh. cannot do it. Uh, to get back to criticism, because I said that we shouldn't talk about the novel, whereupon I did. Uh, I would, I've come here as much for information as to uh, voice a viewpoint. Uh, I think that the, first of all, I think the, what the critic is and what the critic does needs definition, desperately, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the American film. The Ameri a film is not a film is not a film. The American film is right now in a highly, uh, in a state of chassis, as Mr. O'Casey would say. It's a uh, it's exciting. I don't think it's the prospect for the American film has ever been more exciting. I wish I were uh, just out of Columbia now and out there, or not out there, because that's the last place films should be made. That's another point I want to get to. Uh, starting in films today, because I think it's a terribly exciting future and possibly a terribly exciting art form. I think the critic, particularly the American critic, has to examine the American film. He has to recognize the fact that it has just begun to emerge as something which is made as films should be made, the way plays are made, books are made, paintings are made, music is made, because someone has something to say and said it. You see, the American film started under the hand, started and has and existed, oh, well, until about 1950, I would say, 50 or 51, under the handicap of two terribly destructive words. One was a word called industry, and the other was a word called product. The American film came into being by a group of more or less literate retailers who ran Nickelodeons and uh, otherwise uh, took over shoe shops and junk shops and showed these <coughs> flickers for five cents and ten cents. And finally, as Alex Corder once put it, it was like a, a bunch of gas station operators getting together and saying, hey, wait a minute, where did all this oil come from? Maybe that's what we ought to own. And at that time, they moved to Southern California and said, we're going to build factories and we're going to manufacture this product. And that is why, for so many years, these enormous factories existed out there. They turned out 
I remember when I was at Paramount and at Metro and at Fox, they turned out up to 90 films a year. Uh, the theater, the th theaters at that time owned the factories. The retailers owned the chief source of supply. That was because they had a monopoly on something which the novelist has not had to concern himself with, unless it was Jacqueline Suzanne, for some time, which is the mass audience. As I see it ever since, I should imagine, predating the wheel, there was a need for the American mass to find its way through the most terrifying part of the day, then as now, which is those hours between dinner and when do you get to bed. What do you do? You can't communicate, you can't talk. You know, how do you get through those hours? This is what television, gin, rummy, pot, booze, and other, th other things that are ultimate homo sapiens has been able to develop in order to get them through those hours. For centuries, the theater had that monopoly. By and large, the human being cannot entertain himself. He has no inner resources. He doesn't indulge in flights of fancy. He doesn't say, ah, oh, at last I am alone. He said, oh my God, I'm alone. <laughs> this is what he does. And we know this. This is this is uh, Eddie Albee uh, nearly dramatized it successfully, and he called it the terror. It's the terror of the human being alone, and he needs this distraction. Up to 1929, in order to satisfy that distraction, in order to be distracted from himself, to find his way from dinner to bed, he would have to go out to the theater, that's why we had 72 theaters in New York. They had a monopoly on mass entertainment. There were several hundred vaudeville theaters. Then the movie started to talk, and he found that he could see and hear someone sing to him, perform for him, just as on the date in which I think it started, way back before the wheel, I can imagine a bunch of our forebears sitting around on some hill, stuffed, waiting for night to come so we could sleep under a rock. And suddenly one of them got up and uh, shoved a feather up his rear end and began to dance. And an audience was born and an actor was born. And I think it's existed since then. And they were delighted with it. And he had to find new things to do. And that's how writers were born. But at any rate, the movies, starting in 1929, took over that monopoly, with the result that Bordeaux died almost overnight. And the theater dwindled down to a mighty few. It got about 26 houses. And from 1929 to 1949, these retailers that had built these factories in California knew they had it. They had a lock, as we put it, in Las Vegas, on this fantastic mass need 
to be distracted from their lives, their dreary, dreary uh, debris of existence. But in 1950, something happened, and what we call the idiot box took over. And suddenly this mass audience slipped through their fingers. And the audience could then stay home and turn on the idiot box. Didn't bother putting on a shirt. You punch a couple of holes in a can of beer, and that was it. Today, the film has to be something good enough to make the audience turn off its television set and get the hell out of the house to see it. This requires an effort. This is something that the film, quote, industry, unquote, is fighting tooth and nail. This is, this is an area in which I think the film critic has been totally non-existent, which is the struggle of the American film, which exists today to free itself. I left Hollywood 20 years ago. I've only made three films back there. I wrote two, two films and a movie. Sorry. Um, <laughs> two films and a movie in those 20 years. Because I couldn't stand Los Angeles. It had nothing to do with... It terrified me. But the industry has no intention of giving up. The new, I grew up with Mayer, Talberg, Harry Cohn, Jack Warner, all the old evil giants who had their duchies, and they were all individual duchies, and the, the workers, the, the electricians, the grips, all built their little homes around these duchies. This is literally true. There was the Duchy of Culver City and the Duchy of Fox and the Duchy of Burbank. And they had every right to believe that this was going to go on forever. And I really believe that evil as they were, men like Mayer and Skank and the rest uh, meant this to go on forever. But today you have a new group in there. And these are the carpetbaggers. These are the conglomerates. And they've come out there to just squeeze what there is to squeeze out of it and move on to other things. But there is a tremendous investment in real estate and outmoded equipment. The Hollywood studios are easily the worst equipped in the world today. Technicians are good, but the equipment is not to be believed. And they have no they have no intention of helping the American film exist as it must exist. And for 20 years, there has been no reason why films should be made in Hollywood. None whatever. There is no sunshine. In order to get a shot of simple blue sky, if you're shooting a television commercial, you've got to travel more than 50 miles out of the city of Los Angeles to get it. 
Uh, originally, they came out there because the sets were on turntables, and they turned them around so the sun was over your left shoulder, like it is when you cope with your, with your brownie. Uh, that doesn't exist anymore. Since the Klieg light went, there's no reason. There is an enormous silo of talent out there. And it is a silo of talent. It has been transported out there and put there. It hasn't grown. It hasn't developed. Who knows what Marlon would have been if he had stayed as Larry Olivier did, as Paul Schofield did. Paul Schofield and Larry were young actors when Marlon was a young actor. But they worked in the theater. Uh, to take an example, you take a, fellow, a young actor like, then, uh, by the way, want me to shut up, I'll shut up any minute. I, I'm not making a point. <laughs> Bob Redfield, I am making a point, which is that what I had hoped would be that the American critic would somehow examine the identity and condition of the American film and help to free it from an industry form which still exists, but in a more virulent form even than before. You now have it as the heads of so-called studios, a fellow running one studio who used to make pants, uh, uh, slacks. The only executive in Hollywood with a sewing machine in his office. Uh, uh, another one uh, uh, was a fellow who was fired from uh, a radio network, a television network, uh, got a job at three different studios to produce films, never produced a film, but is now heading a very big studio in Hollywood. The third was a successful agent. This is the day of the packager. This is the day of the manipulator. I, I myself uh, severed my connections with the American Film Institute because they insisted upon making its sort of uh, Vatican Hollywood. This is the worst place for the young American filmmaker to learn anything about the making of a film, particularly the standards of what a film should be in terms of what it has to be to exist from now on. These are the things that I wish the American critic would concern himself with. What I found, back to my earlier reference to the fact that I don't think that Fellini could name six critics, I find that critics by and large read critics and write for critics. This has been my experience. Now, this is going to be a dreadful admission, and possibly uh, uh, I do lie, but I'm not lying now. I haven't lied yet. Uh, I picked up the Sunday Times and found uh, the, uh, <laughs> this, this, this Elizabethan contretemps that went on between the two pamphleteers. And in all honesty, I must admit, I had never read John Simon. <laughs> Certainly, I, I mean, I've read, I've, I've heard, I've read him in the New York Magazine, partly, sometimes. I had never heard of him as a film critic. Now, whore or not whore, good, bad, or indifferent, and I've been all of them, uh, it seems to me I should have heard of a film critic named John Simon. 
yet he seems to be extremely well known to all the critics. <laughs> and my point about American film criticism is, first of all, I would hope that they would address themselves more to the American filmmaker than to the esoteric uh, well, dabbler in film. I would hope that they would uh, demeaning as it may be and perhaps dirtying find out more about the about what goes on in the structure of the film business. The, the tremendous dogged last stand that's being put up by the industry concept. Uh, the great success of a thing called, uh, what the hell is the name of it? You don't have to say you're sorry. Uh, the love, love Story. Lo love Story. <laughs> the, uh, love Story. Uh, that can be equated with no, no, not that. We all want 1935 to be back here again. Well, tw 25 would be better than 35. I'd be just, I'd be, well, I'd, yeah, I'd be living, living, no. Uh, we all want it, not really, no, of course not. But we all want it at times. We all want it between dinner and going to bed. And that's where No, No, Nanette and Love Story provide it. It's an opiate. It's, it's that, uh, take this pill and uh, you don't have to look out of the window. I wish that the American film critic would find more pertinence in these things. I wish, um, I'll just, for one little stop at Mr. Friedan, who I just met. We have a situation in which and I've dramatized this, so I know whereof I speak, and I've lived with it. The American female film star at age 40 is faced with a tremendous decision. She has got to make up her mind, and don't laugh at this, although it's a cue for very, some very old, corny theatrical jokes. The moment in which the actress has to decide whether or not she will play the mother of a teenage daughter or son. Because the moment she says yes, it's downhill. I wish the American film critic would examine the standards by which it's perfectly all right for Gary, Cary Grant or Gary Cooper, who were in their 60s, to go to bed with a 22-year-old Lancaster, Douglas, Fonda, Fonda's in his, well in his 60s, Lancaster, held Newman and, uh, uh, Newman's over 45, Brando's over 45. <laughs> but can you imagine a young man going to bed with a 45-year-old actress? And if he knew what he was doing, he would. <laughs> um, the, uh, in other words, there are so many things in the American film and I am, a I am pointing to the American film. 
that I wish the American critic would apply himself to and thereby apply himself to a far greater degree to the American filmmaker. Make the American filmmaker aware of the critic. Now, just in one more minute. In my own career, I've been quoted as saying, I think I said this to you, Andy, once, uh, and I found it incontrovertible. My films, particularly those that I've written as well as directed, seem to lose something in the original English. <laughs> because I found invariably that films which I've made and written, I thought a certain amount of thought and, and perhaps penetration, have been dismissed summarily by the critic here. And I find that in France, that in England, they're received much more thoughtfully. And I find, I find uh, my work commented on in, in a way that makes me think, well, look, maybe I did bring it off. You see, I think there are, a diff there is a difference, Andy, I think, between a movie and a film. This is Graham Greene, uh, used to say there was a difference, some of his novels were entertainments and some were novels. Well, some of his entertainments are better than some of his novels. Right. <laughs> and there are some movies that are a hell of a lot better than films. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I, made, I made a movie which, together with a bunch of other middle-aged talents, we tried to have some fun with, with uh, Western mythology. Uh, this movie, I found, was, to a very large extent, dismissed as, oh, well, here's, a, no, here's an old Hollywood hack doing a whole... Uh, why do you have to go and do a Western? Why? It's not his kind of thing. Yet I pick up very lengthy reviews from abroad point out that the almost ridiculous violence of having the fight in the peace war is, is, a, uh, is a very pointed comment on the deliberate violence of the Western. The fact that every punch in the fight was dubbed at exactly the same level. These are all points that I have that I've done, that are brought back to me by other critics abroad. Uh, I find little things I do noted elsewhere. I wish that the American film critic would choose. I don't think that every, every movie should be reviewed necessarily. I don't think that, uh, I, I can't imagine you reviewing every book that's published. But yet Andy and, and, and Mr. Calvin make it their point to slosh down and review. I should I don't know. Not you remotely. Probably you don't. Not but remotely. I know you see most of them. Mm, right, yeah. So why you don't read most of the crap that's published. <laughs> you say, why should they be reviewed? And those that are reviewed, I think should be reviewed with a great deal more thought and with a great deal more application to the film maker and not to the esoteric theory. That's what Thank you, Mr. Lincoln.
you all have a chance to ask Mr. Mankiewicz questions after Mr. Kaufman has his say. Uh, Kaufman is a novelist and a playwright. He's had various teaching positions. He's film critic at the New Republic. He also, for many years, as you know, conducted a discussion program on the film uh, over Channel 13. And his own uh, criticisms were collected in a book, A World on Film. Mr. Kaufman. Thank you. I feel a bit eviscerated <laughs> because um, most of the things that Mr. McElroy says critics should be doing, I have thought that some critics, Mr. Saris certainly and hopefully myself, had been trying to do, but we wind our way back to that later. Uh, I'd really like to begin with a little ironic note that I think pertinent that this meeting about criticism and film is being held in a university that has just launched a savage attack on its school of the arts and is trying to demolish it. Uh, why not the Department of Economics? <laughs> to follow uh, the Columbia administration's logic, the economists are responsible for the trouble, not the artists. <laughs> A uh, second incidental note, apropos, quite incidental, apropos of uh, one of Mr. Mackowitz's remarks about uh, novelists and plays. It's largely true, with some wonderful exceptions like James Joyce, but it's largely true about writers of English and largely untrue about uh, writers in other languages, which seems to me an interesting point. just occurred to me while you were speaking. Men like uh, Montalat, Sartre, Camus, and Pirandello, all excellent novelists, uh, as well as fine playwrights. Fine is a mild word. Uh, I think that probably reflects something, not so much a matter of gift, essentially, as a matter of cultural attitudes towards the theater. A culture's attitude towards the theater. Uh, which always amuses me because it's such a uh, an old, stodgy, fuddy-duddy state of mind in people who are other otherwise consider themselves radical and uh, liberated. Aside from them, most film critics are uh, serious ones, are working along, I wouldn't say exactly in, uh, with an air of... Uh, improvisation, although that, that applies too, but under the aegis of an individual psyche, of an individual hope, expectation, desire, working along finding out what film is, exploring the relatively untapped mysteries of its language of metaphor, of its possibilities, why it does not seem able to do certain things, <clears throat> why it can do some things very easily, so easily that they're a trap, why in some there seems at present no clear reason why the film form can't do anything possible that any art 
can yet do. After which, before closing this portion, I'd just like to add one note. There was one film, Mr. Mankiewicz, in which a young man went to bed with a 45-year-old woman, and not long ago, uh, and in some millions of people saw it, The Graduate. Yes, in a comedy sense. <laughs> that comedy should happen to every 22-year-old boy. That's terribly important. That's terribly important. They said, that's how we can get away with it. I'd make one point about The Graduate. Uh, it's interesting, somebody pointed out to me recently, about the only country in the world, uh, sort of civilized world, I suppose, uh, in which The Graduate was not a hit, was in France, with a theme of a man going with an older woman. It's such a familiar literary theme that people just didn't say, ooh, 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 which I think is what uh, was relied on in The Graduate, the shock effect that a young boy would go to bed with uh, an older woman. I mean, I think it was used for shock uh, rather than, you know, as a liberating thing. I don't think it was that deep. I think it was done for comedy. Well, anyway. And that's how they got away uh, with it. Secondly, I just want to just say one point. I, I generally agree with most of the things that Stanley Falcon said about the... Uh, about film, I think they're very, very subtle. I would like to quarrel very mildly with one statement and the implication of the statement more than the statement itself, because I think it, it comes back to what I was saying at the beginning, which I'd like to somehow uh, reduce uh, in scope. That is, Mr. Kaufman expressed, you know, amazement that Citizen Kane emerged in 1941, which say about half a century after the practical birth of the cinema. Well, I think this whole notion of, uh, it's something that we used to hear in the 30s and the 40s and even the 50s about, well, we're still a young art and we have a long way to go. We're a young art in a very old world. I mean, film is a young art in an old world. I mean, film did not begin in a primitive world and it wasn't locked in a subcontinent, isolated from all the other arts. And it's no miracle, uh, Citizen Kane is no miracle, it was made by a man of the theater, a very proficient man of the theater who took uh, thousands of years of theater with him into the cinema. It was made by a man who read books, who knew about literature, who, uh, who I think, incidentally, I think made a better film the second time out with Magnificent Ambersons, taking out uh, Booth Tarkington's novel. I think it's, it's a more mature, more solid work, uh, less, uh, less pyrotechnics. But again, the work of a person with a literary sensibility, a person with a radio sensibility, a person with a sense of language. Language is very old. So film, I don't think, is this, this old, this very young, childish thing that is sort of growing up. It is drawing on all the other arts, and therefore its, its maturity is accelerated. And the other point, and this is a point I think that Mr. Mankiewicz brought up, and I, I certainly defer Mr. Mankiewicz, you know, certainly knows, you know, all the horrors and, and difficulties and constrictions and uh, compromises that were imposed in Hollywood. Uh, and I've heard a great deal of this brave new world we're going into now. And I, I think pretty much we could agree here that I think uh, Hollywood is pretty much, as we've known it, as, that is, as a producer of 300, 400 films or movies or products coming out of the assembly line in Hollywood, this is pretty well gone. They're not going to produce any 300, 400 anymore. Uh, they'll be lucky if, they, uh, if they're still in business by the end of next year. Uh, there's, there's many of the studios are collapsing. 
uh, and what what isn't collapsing financially will probably collapse on the San Andreas Fault. So, I mean, that that sort of thing is dead. We we just don't have Hollywood to kick around anymore. I mean, we've got to find something else. And I'm looking at this brave new world now that's coming with independent filmmakers and all the wonderful liberated masterpieces. And there just aren't that many, if any. Uh, I don't think five easy pieces you know, towers over Casablanca, or towers, a much less Citizen Kane, the magnificent Andersons. I don't think that MASH is the, you know, last word in the development of the cinema. I don't think that any of the independent films I've seen here or abroad, you know, will, you know, make me burn all my old Buster Keaton prints and uh, my Chaplin movies and uh, Murnau and Eisenstein and Dovshenko and Fritz Lang and all these other people who exist in the past under mercantile or repressive systems. I don't think we're moving. I, I don't think, on the other hand, that we're going into the dark ages because you know, L.B. Mayer is no longer with us to help us. I, I think what we're going to is very much like what we've been through. We're going through a lot of frantic activity, a lot of searching for financing, a lot of uh, reaching out to find out what the market is, a lot of new cliches, a lot of uh, new mediocrity, and out of it, out of this, this, this jumbled, horrible process, I think every year you'll have a few pretty good movies or films to look at. And that's all. I don't think, I, I don't see any great liberation. I don't see that the death of Hollywood is going to, you know, open up all the uh, possibilities of cinema. This is something that people believed, I think, in the 30s and the 40s, that, you know, if we ever got rid of these dream merchants, these... Uh, uh, sewing machine people and these slack salesmen and uh, all these awful people. So now we have people who wear beads and uh, smoke marijuana and uh, say heavy and uh, groovy and everything and uh, read Charles Reich and uh, are with it and uh, believe in all the right causes and, you know, you get love story. Uh, or you get... Uh, I, I don't think that's progress. Now, I'm not...